You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. Then he released Barabbas for them, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you, would de- you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It's great to be with you today. I love this church. I love the opportunity to serve here. I'm just glad to be a member here. I've been in the church for a few decades now. And um, I just have to say publicly, I'm just... I'm just excited about the trajectory of our church. I haven't always felt that way about churches that I've been a part of. Um, I, I'm, I'm just so thankful to be with you this morning. But uh, it is a difficult passage that we have before us. But an important passage. I have to say a wondrous passage, though I though I know that's a strange word to use here in this context. It's an ironic passage. The word irony uh, uh, is is before us uh, in this passage. It's a very ironic passage because there's many ironies scattered throughout it. And so that will be sort of the theme for today. And I wanted to begin then by talking a little bit about irony. What, What is irony? 
A state of affairs, one definition says, the opposite of what is expected or what one might expect. And another definition is, it's a literary technique. It's a technique that good authors use in which the significance of the words and actions of the characters is different and far greater than they imagine, than they, than they recognize. And the authors use irony to promote insight, to promote deeper understanding of something that they want to make a point of, or sometimes for humorous effect, sometimes both. Um, we have lots of irony in our lives in so many ways. If we have eyes to see it, I think reading the Bible uh, helps us to, to become acclimated to that way of seeing the world, and that's part of the the purpose here today. But, um, gee, I found a slide uh, for, for today's talk that kind of uh, illustrates a little bit of irony. Christians believe that humans have been placed on earth as stewards to care for God's creation. Yet, Christians, evangelical Christians, tend to be politically conservative, and that generally means pro-business and, and that they're skeptical of environmentalism. So you get tweets like this um, that, that, uh, that are ironic, um, not, not exactly what, what you might expect. And the passage, uh, the, the passage that we're looking at today has, has this kind of irony where things aren't what you might expect, but, but, but also the second kind, uh, definition of irony is, is, is really strongly being communicated. That there's a, there's a deeper meaning going on that the, the characters don't have any clue about, or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. But as the readers, as Christians, we read it and we see it, and it, and it strikes us deeply. So I want to I want to think I want to plant that a little bit deeper, um, emphasize that that good authors then will use irony. They'll present they'll juxtapose two contradictory meanings that are kind of jarring when you when you see them, and they may even produce a sort of emotional reaction. But, but the goal is that that emotion would move us, would move us into a place of deeper reflection on, on whatever it is that the irony is, is about. And, and ideally, would move us into greater wisdom about the mysteries of human life and its paradoxes and its injustices. So perhaps that's God's purpose in this passage. The Lord, as we know, is the author of history in an ultimate sense. I don't understand how he does it and how he works with our free wills. I don't understand it. But the Bible makes clear that in some sense, this, this, uh, the goings-on down here, are, are, God is in control of them. And he's, in a deep sense, authoring the story. It's very particularly the case 
regarding Jesus's death, which of course he sent his son to, to uh, the father sent his son to die for us. And so, uh, and we also know that God is the author of the Bible. So he, he, he's really the author here. And, and, and there are all these ironies in the passage. And so what are we to make of that? what I want you to be thinking about as we go through them and, and we'll, we'll continue kind of more deeply digging into uh, the, these ironies. But I want to begin by just calling them what they are, painful ironies. When we read them, they're, they're painful. And, you know, I also have to, you know, acknowledge, uh, gee, we're all familiar with this passage. We've read it dozens, hundreds of times. Um, we're, we're, we, we know it already. And so part of the challenge of an, of an old irony is it would be nice if, if we could make it fresh. And we pray the Holy Spirit does that, but it also helps for us to kind of open up our hearts and kind of be willing to receive it, you know, sh- share with me, Lord, again in a fresh way. And, and, and what that will mean then is that there may be some pain that we experience you know, we, we, don't, we don't look for pain. God doesn't want us to be in pain, uh, ultimately. But, but also pain is a part of life down here. And, and God obviously endured a lot of it on earth. And that's meant to tell us something. And so we expect that opening up might actually pain us a bit. These are painful ironies. Well, what's the first one? Um, the most obvious one might be this theme that kind of runs through the passage that Jesus is the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And gee, that doesn't sound ironic except the way that it's used in the passage. It's so um, used mockingly. Pilate, the the religious leaders, uh, they they use it in a way that is, is trying to make Christ look ridiculous. They're, they're accusing him of, of saying he's the king of the Jews, and that's obviously a farce. He's a fake. And so, so they keep saying it, or they put it, as Pilate did, a, a sort of a, a banner on the cross uh, in, in order to make him look f- like a fool. So there's an irony there. But what, what exactly is the irony is, of course, he actually was the king. He, he was the Messianic king, the long-promised son of David that was to come to bring in an everlasting kingdom. And even more ironic, the, those who were the most devoted to, to Christ's religion, to the true God's religion, were the ones who instigated his crucifixion. How does, how does that happen? John unpacks it a little bit. He, he says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Understating what we're reading about later in the story. And, and, and he, a little bit later, John 3, gives a, a, a bit of an explanation because they love darkness rather than light. Well, another irony, of course, is the crowd's choice of Barabbas rather than Jesus Christ. Pilate, the governor, 
recognized that Christ was innocent of any serious wrongdoing, certainly wasn't worthy of, of capital punishment. And he wanted to get him out of it. He was surprised that Christ didn't stick up for himself, wouldn't defend himself. And so he comes up with this idea that apparently there's this tradition that the governor can release a prisoner during Passover. And so he, he gives the, 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 the folks in the, wherever this was, uh, in Jerusalem, a choice between Barabbas, this notorious prisoner, and Jesus Christ. And he assumes that they're going to take Christ if given the opportunity. But of course, that's not what happened. Instead, they when when well, what do I do with what do we do with Jesus Christ? The implication he's innocent. They they respond, crucify him. Well, the irony is probably obvious to us all. The crowd would prefer a real criminal to be released in order to put to death the Son of God. When you put it, when I put it that way, that's so striking. It's, it's so ironic. It's painfully ironic. But the irony gets more painful. There's the mocking of Christ by the soldiers. Let's read that again. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. I don't think irony is a strong enough word for what's happening now. Yes, he's the king of the Jews. The deep meaning in the story, he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. They made him a crown, mocking him, hailing him. They should be praising him. They should be bowing down in love and adoration and thanking him for all the goodness of their lives. And instead they spit on him and strike him with the royal scepter, so-called. How did Christ endure that without just breaking down? And another irony, the irony of him being crucified between two thieves. The good, the good son of the father that obeyed him to the end, identified with sinners. And yet, how ironic, how fitting it was, because he, in fact, was identifying himself with us thieves, us sinners because he was taking our sin upon himself.
The final irony that we'll focus on today is is the worst. Let's read it again. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. A second round of mocking. But this was really worse in in at least a couple of ways. For one thing, he's now on the cross. He's in physical agony, unlike probably most any of us will experience. Psychological agony, these taunts alone, and spiritual agony because he's impaled upon the cross of judgment. And he's in this time period alienated from his father on our behalf, abandoned by the father as our substitute to bear our sin, our shame, our guilt. And so he had no sense as a human of God's favor. And then secondly, because, you know, the the first mocking, eh, that was the Romans. What do they know? They're just having some sport with one more prisoner that have done that before. But, But this was the religious leaders of the religion that he set up. This was his people. And they took his own words And then the words that the Spirit of God had spoken through David in Psalm 22, a psalm about this day, and used it against him, daring him to do miracles to escape this death, this judgment. We'll never never know the pain. We don't have the capacity to to appreciate the pain of, of that. The previous night, he had asked the Father, please take this cup from my hand, if possible. And of course, he, you know, he received it. He, he, he remained faithful, but that, that just shows the agony of what he knew he was going to face the next day. And here he is in the middle of it, and partly because of this. It, it reminds us of what Satan had said to Christ three years earlier after he had fasted for 40 days. And, and he said, do, miracle, do, do a miracle, to save yourself from your plight. It's as if Satan was saying through these words, do you see now how just how horrible your messianic suffering is? It's not too late. You can still use your power to get out of this. You don't have to lay down your life for these people. Surely that came with more force than three years earlier. 
It portrays the irony of Christ dying for his people while the leaders of his people are taking his words of salvation and throwing them back in his face, ironically fulfilling the very scripture that they were quoting. Well, I learned something about irony in this passage from a great Puritan poet named George Herbert. I commend him to you. Um, I, I think of him as a therapy poet, believe it or not. Uh, not many poets I suppose you can say that of, but you can of him. He was a pastor. He, he was a very devout Christian. He understood, he had great theology and understood deeply the gospel. And he understood how to apply it to the hearts of God's people. Well, he wrote a, a poem called The Sacrifice that I'd like to take you through a sort of, I'm, I'm cutting out some of it, but I want to get us through enough of it to get a feel for how he interprets this very ironic passage. And I'll I'll read it with you. The princes of my people make a head against their maker. They do wish me dead. Who cannot wish except I give them bread? I cannot wish, he's saying, except I give them bread. Was ever grief like mine? So you see what he's doing is simply trying to imagine that he is somehow in Christ's place verbalizing some of what Christ might have experienced through this period. Hark how they cry aloud still, crucify. It is not fit that he live a day, they cry. Who cannot live less than eternally? Was ever grief like mine? Behold, they spit on me in scornful wise, who by my spittle gave the blind men eyes leaving his blindness to my enemies. Was ever grief like mine? The soldiers lead me to the common hall. There they deride me. They abuse me all. Yet for 12 heavenly legions I could call. Was ever grief like mine? Then with a scarlet robe they made me a ray which shows my blood to be the only way and cordial medicine left to repair man's decay. Was ever grief like mine? This grief is explaining the irony, right? that's, That's the point that drives home grief. Then on my head a crown of thorns I wear, for these are all the grapes Zion doth bear, though I my vine planted and watered there. Was ever grief like mine? So sits the earth's great curse in Adam's fall upon my head. So I remove it all from the earth unto my brows and bear the thrall. Was ever grief like mine? 
Then with the reed they gave to me before they strike my head, the rock from thence all store of heavenly blessings issue evermore. Was ever grief like mine? They bow their knees to me and cry, Hail King! Whatever scoffs and scornfulness can bring, I am the floor, the sink where they it fling. Was ever grief like mine? Oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all except for me. Was ever grief like mine? Lo, here I hang, charged with a world of sin, the greater world of the two. For that world came in by words, but this by sorrow I must win. Was ever grief like mine? Such sorrow as if sinful man could feel or feel his part, he would not cease to kneel till all were melted. Though he were all steel, was ever grief like mine. Now heal thyself, physician. Now come down. Alas, I did so when I left my crown and father's smile for you to feel this frown was ever grief like mine. In healing not myself, there does consist all that salvation which you now resist. Your safety in my sickness doth subsist, was ever grief like mine. A king my title is, prefix on high, yet by my subjects am condemned to die, a servile death in servile company was ever grief like mine. That searching question. Questions invite us to go deeper, to ponder more fully. What does God want from us as we read of these painful ironies? If irony is a literary technique, God has done a pretty masterful job, shall we say, of inviting us in to go deeper into deeper insight. Let's suppose he wants to use these painful ironies to get us to think, to think deeply in our hearts, to move us, to change so that we become different, a little more different today, this week, this, this Easter season. 
Maybe he wants us to see Christ differently, a little differently than before, a little more, with a little deeper clarity, to worship him more from the heart, to love him a little more dearly in light of these ironies. Maybe he wants us to see and feel the world a little differently than before, particularly its suffering, its contradictions. Was ever grief like mine, he asks us, through George Herbert's, I think, wise interpretation. We grieve, don't we? We've suffered, yes, we have suffered. But none like him, to be sure. And he invites us, not to shame us, he invites us into this meditation to embrace us if we have eyes to see. He probably wants us to understand sin differently, to feel it more deeply, to understand a a bit more of the pain of sin, which his death surely taught more clearly than any words could. He probably wants us to see and feel differently about others as well. When we're sometimes mistreated, which we all have happen on occasion in our life, I think these ironies can help us. Again, not to shame us, not to make us make the feelings go away, but to to make us wiser, more sober, more true to what's actually happening, more honest with the Lord about all of it. Surely he wants us to see and feel about ourselves differently in light of these ironies. So it's common to interpret this passage as being about those stupid Romans and those evil Pharisees so long ago that they have almost nothing to do with us except we're in the audience appreciating our good Savior. Thank the Lord he got through this somehow. But let me suggest that we follow Soren Kierkegaard here and read this passage for self-examination. He wrote an essay with that title that would encourage us to read even this passage that way. And it's it's a little scandalous to do this, but I ask that you bear with me. I ask that you trust me and try this out, this reading. Because this passage is the focal point of all human history, of all biblical history, of, of, of all the revelation that God has given us. And perhaps this is not just about those stupid Romans and those evil Pharisees, but maybe it's about the human race, and that includes us. And maybe it's about all religious people, and that includes us. I know we use that phrase, you know, I'm not religious, I'm, I don't know what we say, spiritual or something, but, uh, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's a person. And I agree with that, you know. But, but it is a religion too. I mean, you know, 
Perhaps we see in these passages the ultimate outcome of of the human autonomy that began when we sinned against God in the garden. Perhaps they show us with terrible clarity, even now, how we, images of God, resent being only images and not God. Perhaps this passage is about our continuing tendency to resist God in, in parts of our lives. Yes, not as bad as what they did, but in parts of our lives. Perhaps God wants to use this passage to give us a horrifying picture of our religion insofar as it's still shaped by our sin. You see, we're still in the flesh. We still fall short of the glory of God. We still use our religion for self-serving purposes. If we could see into our hearts with God's omniscience, thank God we can't, we would see that our remaining sin continues to want our sin to go unpunished, for us to get away with it like Barabbas, for us, dare I say it, to put God to death, banished from our lives, God condemned, not us after all we've been through, so that we can do what we want and, and perhaps become renowned for being great and the source of our own greatness. Is that not what it, it all comes down to? Now, I know that may be a strange way to read this passage. Does that feel fair to you? Are, are you aware of such motives in your heart still? I've been a Christian 40 years. I wish I didn't have such motives in my heart, but I do. Maybe you don't have as much as I do, and that's great. I'm glad for you. I I sincerely mean that. But you still, according to this passage, I think we can conclude we probably all have more than we're aware of. These were were very, very devout people who had no clue of, of what was really going on. Now, of course, thank God, you wouldn't do that if you were back there in those days, a Roman soldier or, or a, a religious person. You're a follower of Christ. There's more to you than these motives, a lot more. Thank God. That's what we're talking about today, right now, is your old, what Paul calls the old self, It's not your new self, for your new self loves God and wants more than anything to live for him, to live in him more and more. And all of that is from God. I mean, that's, that's, you know, all of what, all the, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from God. So what do we have that we haven't received? That doesn't, that doesn't minimize it. It makes us rejoice. It makes us thankful. It's all good in God. It's all good. Thank God that we are taking this in and, and that we wouldn't do those, those things and resist Christ to the extent they did. But, but maybe there is something in here for us. That old self is still with us. And maybe we can see in our lack of interest in spending quality time with God in our devotions a manifestation How often do I get distracted when I start my Bible reading, meditation, time? Our preference 
for television, for the internet, for hunting, for shopping. Maybe we can see our old self and how we treat our spouse, how mean we can be sometimes, how we can ignore our spouse, how we respond when they're mean to us. Maybe we can see our old self and how we treat our children, how impatient we are sometimes with them, how harsh our words can be, and how quickly we wound them when, when they wound us. Maybe we see our old self in our enjoyment of judging others at work or even in our family, especially extended family, or in the media. So, so God authored a story with such ironies for many reasons, and perhaps part of them is because he wants to move us towards himself, Again, this isn't to shame us. The whole point of the story is to take our shame away, right? To move us to seek more of the power of his redemption in our hearts. To take what we know in our heads and and, and that it would go more deeply, more fully into our hearts. So that over time it rearranges stuff down there slowly, but surely removing more of the shame and guilt that continues to motivate us unconsciously most of the time. But before we finish, I want us to spend some time sort of rethinking the story of Christ in a different way, in a different perspective. You remember I mentioned that sometimes ironies are, are used for, a, for humorous effect. It's quite ironic that I'm doing this, that I'm shifting this perspective, but, but I think it's in keeping with the whole point of the story. Because the ironies of Christ's suffering that day are also strangely, ironically, to bring us into the joy of Christ's beauty and his good redemptive purposes for us. That's really where we want to end up. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. So let us focus briefly, one more time, sort of thinking through a few of the stories, uh, through a few of, of the aspects of this part of the story, to consider what we might call joyful ironies. And think again at what God intends to produce with them in your heart, in mine, in your life, in mine. Well, the first one's the hardest to understand, And it's about the, the two natures of Christ and how they come together in Christ in the one person of Jesus Christ and how on the cross he suffered as a human being, but somehow the person of the Son of God experienced all of it as well. I don't understand a lot about the Christian religion at some of its greatest mysteries, But this somehow seems really important to our reconciliation with God because him bearing that as a human being in our place and at the same time united to God himself means that somehow what he experienced was with with our sin, carrying our sin, 
made that perfectly resolved in the righteousness and love of the triune God. That's a joyful irony of his divine and human natures. How about in Christ, God's powerful love overcame his righteous anger against our sin, righteously, not by overlooking it, but by taking our sin and shame and guilt onto himself and dissolving it in his infinite goodness without compromising his righteousness. There's an irony of joy there. And God's love for you took away all your sin and shame and guilt in Christ on the cross. He endured all that we've been seeing today because he loves you and he wants your best. That's ironic because we're sinners, but he wants you. He wants your best. Though still a sinner, because of Christ, you are simultaneously now declared by God to be a saint. As holy and righteous as Jesus himself. Having become the righteousness of God because he became sin for us. You, you are the righteousness of God now. 2 Corinthians 5. Laughable, you say? That's right. It's, it's God's joyful irony. And though you still sin and sometimes resemble an enemy of God too much, he wants to get closer to you. He wants you to get closer to him. He wants you to go deeper with him and get greater healing in this life so that slowly and gradually he can transform your heart and life more and more until we die and we go to be in with him in heaven, and then it's all good. Nothing bad anymore at all. All gone. Some of you have probably given up on yourselves by now. If you've lived many years in the Christian life, and you, especially if you've experienced some defeat in your Christian life, you feel that maybe there's no hope for change now at this point. You're, 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 you're continuing to go to church. It's, it's good that you, that you are. But hear this today, fresh, May the Holy Spirit give this to you. He, the irony of him not giving up on you. Even now, after all these years, he loves the irony of transforming sinners into saints in their hearts, in their lives, in their relationships over time. If he didn't love it so much, he would have taken us to heaven the moment we got saved. We have to enter into that irony, though, day by day, week after week, month after month. Oh, God, year after year, believing again, not believing, and believing again these, these beautiful gospel ironies, allowing them, opening up so that they sink more deeply into our, into our souls. You see, my friend... You are one of God's ironies, one of his joyful ironies. And you make him smile when he sees you because he sees you joined to forever to the perfection of his son. He sees your end in heaven and he knows you're going to make it and that you're going to be so beautiful when you get there. 
And all of that makes him happy. Will you let yourself be a joyful irony where opposites are joined together? But the deeper truth is his love for you. That's the deepest truth. And this deep truth was symbolized for us in the meal that we take every week, which he, he initiated the night before this terrible day where he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood that is shed for you. So let us take our ironic selves to the Lord now in prayer and preparation for this meal with our Savior. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.